Happy hauntings, horror fans, and welcome to this week's episode of Megan's Murder Movies. I'm your host, Megan, and this week we are breaking down Jaws. I'm so excited to do this one. I figured it would be perfect going into 4th of July weekend. So without further ado, let's jump into it with a summary. When a young woman is killed by a shark while skinny dipping near a New England tourist town of Amity Island, police chief Martin Brody wants to close the beaches, but Mayor Larry Vaughn overrules him, fearing that the loss of tourist revenue will cripple the town. Shark expert Matt Hooper and grizzled ship captain Quint offer to help Brody capture the killer beast and the trio engage in an epic battle of man versus nature. All right, so now that we've got a little summary, let's jump into a cast breakdown, but we can't talk about Jaws without talking about the score. So John Williams did the score. John Williams is an American composer, conductor, and pianist. His career has spanned seven decades. He has composed some of the most popular, recognizable, critically acclaimed film scores in cinematic history. He has won over 25 Grammy Awards, seven British Academy Film Awards, five Academy Awards, and four Golden Globe Awards. With 52 Academy Award nominations, he is the second most nominated individual after Walt Disney. His compositions are considered the epitome of film music, and he is considered among the greatest composers in the history of cinema. Williams has composed for many critically acclaimed and popular movies, including the Star Wars saga, Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Superman, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, the first two Home Alone films, the Indiana Jones films, the first two Jurassic Park films, Schindler's List, and the first three Harry Potter films. So, you must know about John Williams. If you do not, where have you been? What have you been watching slash listening to? Um, But couldn't talk about Jaws without talking about John Williams. Jaws was directed by Steven Spielberg, and Steven is an American film director, producer, and screenwriter. He's a notable figure of the New Hollywood era, and he is the most commercially successful director of all time. And he's the recipient of various accolades, including three Academy Awards, two Best Director wins, a Kennedy Center Honor, a Cecil B. DeMille Award, an AFI Life Achievement Award, and Time Magazine named him one of the most 100 important people of the century in 2013. We've talked about Steven Spielberg a little bit. I think I've told the story about how uh, in a college class, I kind of threatened Steven Spielberg uh, jokingly, of course. And uh, yeah, good times. Gotta love Mr. Spielberg. The screenplay was done by Peter Benchley and Carl Gottib. Peter is an American author, screenwriter, and ocean activist. He's known for his best-selling novel, Jaws, and co-wrote the film adaptation. Several more of his works were also adapted for both cinema and television, including The Deep, The Island, Beast, and White Shark. Later in life, Benchley expressed some regret for his tone in writing about sharks, which he felt indulged already present fear and false belief about sharks, and he became an advocate for marine conservation. Carl is an American screenwriter, actor, comedian, and executive, and he's best known, of course, for co-writing the screenplay Jaws and its first two sequels, as well as directing the 1981 film Caveman. So now that we know kind of about the crew, the music, the director, and the screenwriters, let's chat more about the cast itself. So Roy Schneider plays Chief Martin Brody. And Roy was an American actor and amateur boxer, described by AllMovie as one of the most unique and distinguished of all Hollywood actors. He gained fame for his leading and supporting roles in celebrated film from the 1970s through to the early mid-1980s. He was nominated for two Academy Awards, a Golden Globe Award, and a BAFTA Award. 
His best-known roles include Chief Martin Brody in Jaws, of course, and he reprises that role in the sequel, Jaws 2. NYPD Detective Cloudy Roscoe in The French Connection. NYPD Detective Buddy in The Seven Ups. Doc Levy in Marathon Man. He played choreographer and film director Joe Gideon in All That Jazz. And then he also played Dr. Haywood R. Floyd in the 1948 film 2010, the sequel to 2001, A Space Odyssey. And he was also known for playing Captain Nathan Bridger in the science fiction television series Sequest DSV from 1993 to 1996. Then we'll move on to Robert Shaw, who plays Quint. Robert was an English actor, novelist, playwright, and screenwriter. Beginning his career in theater, Shaw joined the Shakespeare Memorial Theater after the Second World War and appeared in productions of Macbeth, Henry VIII, and other Shakespeare plays. With the Old Vic Company, he continued primarily in Shakespearean roles. In 1959, he starred in the West End production of The Long and The Short and The Tall. Shaw was nominated for an Academy Award and a Golden Globe for his role as Henry VIII in the film A Man for All Seasons. His other film roles include The Sting, of course Jaws, he played roles in From Russia with Love, Battle of Britain, Young Winston, The Taking of Pelham 123, Robin and Maram, Black Sunday, and The Deep. Next we'll move on to Richard Dreyfuss who plays Matt Hooper. Richard is an American actor. He's known for starring in popular films during the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, including American Graffiti, Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Goodbye Girl, The Competition, Stand By Me, Down and Out in Beverly Hills, Tin Men, Stakeout, Always, What About Bob, Another Stakeout, Mr. Holland's Office, and Dreyfus won the Academy Award for Best Actor in 1978 for The Goodbye Girl. He has also won a Golden Globe Award, a BAFTA Award, and was nominated in 2002 for two Screen Actors Guild Awards for his portrayal of former Secretary of State Alexander Haig in the Showtime Network's ensemble film The Day Reagan Was Shot. Now we're going to talk about Lorraine Gary, who plays Ellen Brody. Lorraine's a life member of the Actors Studio, Gary began her acting career in the late 1960s, doing guest appearances on several popular television shows. These include Night Gallery, Dragnet, an episode of The Big Shipment, McCloud, The Marcus Nielsen Murders, and The FBI. She began her first major acting role when she was a guest star on seven episodes of the TV series Ironside. In addition to her work as an actress, Gary owned New Hope Productions, a company that produced television programs. Uh, she's best known for her roles as Ellen Brody in the Jaw film series. She also appeared in 1941 and Car Wash, and she's a member of the Human Rights Watch. She's a member of the Human Rights Watch Women's Rights Adversary Committee. That is a mouthful. For whom she produced and directed a series of 14 educational videotapes and an adversary board member of Miss Magazine and Girls Learn International. Then we'll move on to Murray Hamilton, who plays Mayor Larry Vaughn. Murray's an American stage, screen, and television character actor who appeared in such films as Anatomy of a Murder, The Hustler, The Graduate, The Amityville Horror, and Jaws. Carl Godib plays Meadows in the film. He was, of course, one of the screenwriters that we talked about. So we won't go into his bio again because we've already talked about it. But he plays Meadows in the film. Next, we're going to talk about Susan Backlinney, who plays Chrissy Watkins. 
Um, Suzanne's appearance in Jaws took three days to shoot. She was strapped to a harness while the crew struggled to get the desired effects. She also appeared in Spielberg's film 1941, parroting her role in Jaws. Instead of being attacked by a shark in a midnight swim, she's picked up by the periscope of a Japanese submarine. The scene has been described as the best joke, what is otherwise widely considered one of Spielberg's least successful films. And then she's also appeared in the film Day of the Animals. Then we're going to talk about Lee Ferio, who plays Miss Kittner. Lee acted in a famous scene in the film Jaws, which she ends up slapping police chief Brody, which we'll talk about. And I guess this scene required several takes. She recalled slapping the actor playing the police chief 17 times. I slapped him hard with a loose wrist, which was what I was taught in acting school. She also objected to the profanity of the scene's dialogue as originally drafted. Spielberg agreed with her and the dialogue was rewritten the day before it was filmed. And then in 2013, Lee received a Woman of the Year Award by Women Empowered to make healthy choices for her local theater workshop. And the last cast member we're going to talk about is Peter Benchley, who plays the interviewer on the beach um, on the 4th of July celebration. So Peter's an American author, screenwriter, and ocean activist. Again, uh, he wrote Jaws and helped develop the screenplay, so we won't go into his bio again, but he does have a small role, much like Carl does in the film. Let's jump into some fun facts. So Jaws wasn't even supposed to come out in the summer. It's hard to separate Steven Spielberg's brilliant adaptation of Peter Benchley's novel without thinking of it as a summer movie. While the film hit theaters on June 20th, 1975, it was originally planned for a Christmas 1974 release. Lengthy shooting delays made that goal impossible. Um, There's a really great podcast that I just want to plug really quick. If you're super into Jaws or this podcast really piques your interest, um, I would check out the Wondery podcast that they did. I think it's just titled Jaws. Let me double check. Wondery Jaws. or Maybe it's Making of Jaws. Okay, so the Wondery podcast is called Inside Jaws. It's really interesting. It goes really in depth of kind of the behind the scenes, the fun facts, um, you know, what went wrong with shooting, things that went right, stuff that they learned about sharks and all of that stuff. It's really interesting. I listened to it a couple summers ago when I was living in London and kind of was really getting into podcasts. And yeah, it's a really interesting one. It's called Inside Jaws. It's on Wondery. If you want an even more in-depth look at the film and kind of the behind the scenes part, I would definitely recommend it. It's really done. And of course, Wondery does their podcasting really well. And um, so it's it's going to be a good one. So Martha's Vineyard played the role of Amity Island because of a storm. Most fans know that the famed New England Island with its deep offshore waters and sandy beaches was the real life version of novelist Peter Benchley's fictional Amity Island from the book. What they might not know is that the location scout planned to check out nearby Nantucket Island instead, but stormy weather forced his ferry to Martha's Vineyard where he discovered the many natural features that lured the production there. So then the next fun fact is that the iconic poster wasn't actually created for the film. So the image of a girl swimming naively across the top of the water while a massive great white surges toward her from below was actually from an illustration by artist Roger Castile for the novel's paperback edition. Castile based the big fish on great white dioramas at the American Museum of Natural History, and the swimmer was modeled after a woman who he sketched for an ad in Good Housekeeping. The story goes that he asked her to perch on a stool and pretend to swim to get the pose just right. 
So the next fun fact is that the slate, also known as sticks, clapperboard, or clapboard, is the well-known tablet with the hinged top that gets clapped down to mark the beginning of a film scene. Um, so for Jaws, though, the normally flat edges were replaced with a sharp set of teeth, upper and lower, so it looked like little Jaws, which is kind of a cute little fun fact. So the shark is surprisingly camera shy. So the story's nemesis, a great white shark that attacks and terrorizes the fictional community of Amity Island, doesn't appear on screen until one hour and 21 minutes into the two hour long movie. So we don't get to see, we really don't see the shark a whole lot, but I think that that's the point. I think that it adds to the tension and then the John Williams music makes it spooky, whether we see the shark or not, because we know it's there based on other cues that we're getting from the film. So they named the shark Bruce, kind of the cast and crew. So most Jaws aficionados might already know that there were three different versions of the 1.2 ton mechanically powered predator created for the film. And they were all nicknamed Bruce by Spielberg after his lawyer, Bruce Rammer. So the next fun fact is that George Lucas actually got his head stuck in Bruce's mouth. So before filming began on Martha's Vineyard, Spielberg invited industry friends, including Martin Scorsese, George Lucas, and screenwriter John Millis, to check out the mechanical shark in development. And when Lucas playfully stuck his head inside the shark's mouth, Millis and Spielberg grabbed at the controls and clamped the jaw shut, and it stuck, trapping the rising star director after prying Lucas loose, the guys snuck out of the workshop, afraid that they'd broken the very expensive, very uh, picky shark that they were creating for this film. There's a lot of things that went wrong with uh, with the shark and other um, practical effects that they tried to use. Again, I would definitely check out uh, Inside Jaws, the Wondery podcast, because it talks about all of that and, and all of that cool stuff. So a real shark shown in the movie, caught and hung up on the dock, came all the way from Florida. So the next fun fact is we do see a real shark in the movie, um, and it's when they think that they catch the actual shark that's been causing a ruckus, um, but it's not. It's just a tiger shark who also shouldn't be in that area either, but isn't the one who's been killing members of the town. And this shark came all the way from Florida. So then uh, Robert Shaw had a couple of scary things happen to him in the film, but when he first got to Martha's Vineyard, he was actually shot at. So the playwright and actor had just arrived with his wife Mary to Martha's Vineyard to begin filming, and when they arrived late at night, a local eccentric fired a few rifle bullets through the front door of their rental house. The bullets weren't meant for the star, however. The local thought the place was empty, but still it's... Um, probably pretty scary when you get to location you're like yeah we're gonna start filming a movie let's get all settled in in the house that we're gonna stay in and then you get shot at um so we kind of already talked about this in the cast breakdown but both screenwriters uh are cameoed in the film so peter and carl both have small roles in the film and benchley actually bonded with spielberg and company over booze and cars so i guess there was some um there was a little rift between the two of them over some comments that Spielberg had made about Benchley's original screenplay for the film, but that was quickly squashed once the two met up and enjoyed cocktails and rounds of poker at a beach house the director was renting during the project. I guess there was um, a little bit of possible animosity at the start, but I'm glad they were able to settle that. 
So Steven Spielberg actually appears two times in his own movie. So the first time, his voice crackles over the radio of Quint's boat, the Orca, as the Amity Island dispatcher that patches Brody through to his wife when the chief is out with Quentin Hooper. And the second one for a scene including a local band marching through the town for the 4th of July. Famed composer John Williams was afraid to ask his professional orchestra to sound, well, amateur, but Spielberg had already professed his love of playing clarinet in his high school band to Williams, and that was just the amateur touch the soundtrack needed. Spielberg picked up the clarinet again, played a Sousa march with Williams Orchestra, and several perfectly flawed bars made it into the final cut. Steven Spielberg's dog also appears in the movie, so police chief Brody's dogs are played by Steven Spielberg's real dogs. So then kind of onto the practical effects that I've mentioned, a lot went into making that first shark attack terrifying. And so who can forget, you know, Chrissy getting dragged back and forth in the water. Um, To get that violent action to look real, Spielberg rigged underwater cables to literally drag the actor through the water. To get the sound of her drowning to add to the audio post-production, she was placed in front of a microphone with her head turned up to the ceiling and water was poured down her throat from above, I guess. So, pretty ingenious. So then there's a scare in this movie that, I mean, I guess has to do with the shark, but it's not that we actually see the shark that, that scares us. It's that the shark has attacked this local fisherman's boat and his... Um, like a dis- disembodied head pops up. It's a pretty good jump scare. You know, nobody ever likes to see a head floating around. That's not good. A Martha's Vineyard local named Craig Kingsbury um, was the inspiration for much of Robert Shaw's style of Quint. Not only did Kingsbury end up with a small role as another local fisherman in the film, like I talked about, uh, he plays the fisherman Ben Gardner, but his head pops out of a sunken porthole and that is considered the movie's biggest scare. Because everyone's waiting for the shark. Everyone's like, oh, the shark's the scary part. And then it's like, nah, here's a dead head. So that scary moment was actually filmed in a swimming pool in the editor's backyard. So looking for the ultimate scare, Spielberg had already done extra filming of the discovery of the head by Richard Diverse's character in a special tank back on the mainland after filming wrapped, but he wasn't happy with it. So his legendary editor, Verna Fields, offered up her backyard swimming pool as a place to reshoot the scene. They poured a gallon of milk from Verna's refrigerator into the pool water to make it look more like the ocean. So kind of an even more behind-the-scenes fun fact is that the location crew formed its own JAW softball team. So the crew formed a softball team and on Sundays took on locals in little softball games, which I think is cool. So there was uh, what's called post-JAWS hysteria that really wasn't um, supposed to happen or was intended, but um, it was definitely not a publicity stunt. So people were actually afraid to go into the water, and sometimes things ended up getting out of hand. So one Southern California beach had to be cleared by lifeguards because of a shark sighting panic. Turns out it was actually dolphins. But on a more serious note, the idea of a vengeful rogue shark spurred a national fervor of fear, a drop in beach tourism, and a rise in shark killings. It's taken decades of science and activism to help post-Jaws generations understand and respect the role sharks play in the oceans and ecosystems overall. It's, yeah, people really hated sharks after seeing this, and I, I, yeah, we're not going to get into, like, my ideas um, and opinions. I just don't see it's not the shark's fault that they're just doing what they need to do to survive. I mean, yes, the shark in Jaws is kind of an asshole, 
but he's also an animal. So I don't, <laughs> I don't, yeah. I don't think we need uh, shark hunters and things for just sharks that are minding their own business dealing with fish. And so uh, even if you've not seen the movie Jaws, there's probably, you know, if someone asks you, oh, what do you know about Jaws? Most people are going to say, you're going to need a bigger boat. And that line was actually never scripted. That was just an improvised line by Roy Schneider on the day of shooting. So now that we have met the cast and we've got some fun facts, we can get into our scene-by-scene -scene breakdown. So we open with some music and an underwater scene. We see a bunch of teenagers on a beach having a bonfire, smoking, drinking, you know, classic fun summer things. We see a young blonde man and a young blonde woman kind of looking at each other from a little ways away. They're like smiling, kind of flirting a little bit just with their faces. The man walks over to the woman and she runs off and they end up running to the beach together. We learn that the girl's name is Chrissy. She wants to go swimming and she seems pretty sober, but the boy is definitely drunk. He's having a hard time keeping up with her. She's taking her clothes off. She's getting in the water. He falls when he's trying to take his shirt off. He can't get his shoes up. He should not be swimming because that's not safe when you're that drunk. Um, but so she jumps in the water. She's swimming out toward the buoy. He falls down on the beach and kind of ends up passing out because he's so drunk. She gets there and she turns and yells at him to get in the water. She's swimming around some more and we get some underwater shots of like her feet and her swimming. There are some pretty cool shots actually. So she's kind of just hanging around in the water. She swim around the buoy a little bit. She's just kind of getting some swimming in and then something pulls at her feet. She starts screaming and she's being pulled around by something in the water. By this point, the boy is passed out and is going to be sadly of no help to her. She tries to call for help, though. She tries to hang on to the buoy, but she's dragged under, and then everything goes quiet. The next morning, we are with a husband and wife, and they're waking up late in their home. They have kids who are already up and playing outside. The dad gets a call on the landline, and he has to go into work. We learn that he's the police chief, and they recently moved to town. He drives into Amity Island, where they're advertising it's their big 50th year of doing a big 4th of July celebration. We find out that the chief's name is Martin Brody, and he goes to the beach where the girl passed and is talking with the boy that was with her that night. The boy's telling the chief what happened, and he's like, I think she drowned. Like, I woke up and her clothes were here, but I, like, I passed out. I have no idea what happened. They're talking, and then from down the beach, they hear whistling. That's one of Brody's deputies signaling that they found something. They run to see what was found, and it was her body, or parts of it. It was her arm. And the poor deputy that found her looks like he's about to be sick. Now we're back at the police station, and the young boy from the beach is there, also looking like he's about to be sick, along with the deputy. And Brody is in his office doing paperwork, uh, looking pretty panicked. Brody's assistant gets there or kind of helper. I don't like calling her his assistant, but she gets there and, and takes a phone call for him and it's a call from the medical examiner. Brody takes the call and the medical examiner says that it was a shark attack. Brody wants to close the beach and stop all summer activities until the shark is gone and dealt with. Brody goes to buy supplies to make signs. It's a very, very small town. Like he literally walks from the police station down a couple blocks and into like a local store where he buys the supplies to make the signs. And a few locals even try to stop him and chat about concerns that they have. And he's like, you know, I'll get back to you. I have something to do. Something really important's come up. Like, you know, fill out a form at the office and and I'll I'll be in touch. 
So after he buys the supplies to make the signs, one of the deputies comes up and says, hey, there's a bunch of Boy Scouts doing their mile swim for their merit badges today. And at that point, Brody takes the car to go to the beach to find the Boy Scouts, and he tells his deputy to go and start making signs. The deputy is walking back to the office and runs into the mayor and tells the mayor, hey, like we had a shark attack. You know, chief wants to close the beach. And the mayor does not seem happy about this. So the chief drives to where the Boy Scouts are doing their little swim. And as he's getting on this little ferry to go out to where they're at, the mayor shows up and a couple of other townspeople show up like bigwigs, I guess you could say, from the town. And they tell Chief Brody that he can't close the beach. Amity needs the money from tourists, and if they close the beach, they're going to lose tons of money. They're just going to say that she died from a boating accident that easily could have killed her, and even the ME is there, the medical examiner's there, and he agrees that he'll change his report to match that. The mayor doesn't want to deal with panic, and he kind of threatens Brody a little bit. He's like, this is your first summer. Like, you don't want people, you know, thinking of you in any certain way, or like, this is going to make people really upset, and the town relies on this, and all this stuff, and he doesn't want panic on the 4th of July. That's his big thing. So next, we're at the beach with Brody and his family, and this kid, Alex, goes up to his mom, and he's like, you know, I really want to keep swimming. I want to take my little, like, floaty raft thing out, and she's like, you're getting really wrinkly. Like, we, we should probably head home, and he's like, 10 more minutes, and she agrees. We also see an older boy playing fetch with his dog. We see this boy, Alex, head back out into the water. Everyone seems to be having a good time, and Brody's watching from the water and definitely does not look relaxed. He thinks that he sees a shark, but it was just someone swimming with a gray swim cap on. This guy comes up to complain to Brody, and he's trying to pay attention to the water and, like, you know, tells the guy, okay, yeah, like, we'll talk more about this later. He hears a girl scream, but she's only messing around with her boyfriend. There's lots of tension building on this beach in this moment. His wife, Ellen, starts asking Brody if he's okay. His kids want to go swimming, and he says, yes, that's fine. And then Harry, the man swimming with the cap, comes up, and he's kind of giving Brody crap from not swimming. He's like, you never get in the water. And he's like, yeah, you know, like, I, water's not really my thing. We see a bunch of kids playing, and then the guy playing with his dog now can't find his dog. Now the camera's in the water, and we just see a bunch of legs. So this is like an in-the-water shot. We just see a bunch of legs kicking in the water, people swimming. And the poor kid, Alex, on his raft is attacked by the shark, and blood starts to fill the water. Brody yells at everyone to get out of the water, but doesn't go in himself. He stays right along the shoreline. Everyone's running in to grab their kids, grab other kids. People are, you know, thankfully not trampling over each other, but it definitely gets very chaotic. Once everyone is out of the water, Alex's mother can't find him and starts calling for him. And we see just his little raft all tore up and covered in blood washed ashore. We cut to the police station and there's a $3,000 bounty for whoever kills the shark that killed the little boy. It's a madhouse, and Brody's talking with the town reporter and the mayor. They're having a little town hall moment, and the mayor opens it up and then gives Brody the floor. Brody says they're going to put out extra deputies and shark spotters. And the motel owner's like, well, are you going to close the beaches? And Brody says, yes. Everyone gets upset about this. People are like, that's not fair. Like, this is ridiculous, all of this stuff. And he tries to explain that they're also going to bring in a marine life expert from the mainland to help out. But no one's listening, and really they're just complaining about the beaches being closed. And then the mayor goes, no, it's, it's just a day. They're only going to be closed for a day, 24 hours only. And, you know, there people are still complaining. They're like, 24 hours is like three weeks. Like, that's not fair. Like, you know, we need to stay open. And Brody's clearly very annoyed, which I feel like is fair because like a kid just died and this kid was like probably 12 maybe 
terrible. And that dog probably died too. Nobody talks about the dog, but the dog also probably died. So as everyone's arguing and upset, we see this hand drag its nails across the chalkboard. Now we meet Quint. He says that he'll catch the shark. Uh, He's a bit odd, but he seems really knowledgeable, definitely like a local fisherman type. And Quint says that he will find the shark for 3,000, but he will catch it and kill it for 10,000. He's like, I'll go alone and I get the whole 10,000. And the mayor's like, we'll consider it. Like, we'll think about your offer. And then Quint gets up and leaves. Now we see the beach clothes signs are going up and Brody is home doing research about sharks. His wife sits next to him and they both kind of get startled. Like she sits kind of sort of behind him and he doesn't realize that she's there. And so when he does, he jumps and then she jumps because she's like not prepared for him to get startled. And she wants him to stop reading and try to relax a little bit. She's like, do you want to get drunk and fool around? And he's like, yeah, definitely. And so then they kind of chat a little bit and he's like, where are the kids at? And she said, oh, out by the water. And his oldest son is sitting in a little boat just off their dock. And Brody gets really upset. He's like, you need to get out of the boat, all this stuff. And Ellen, his wife, is like, no, I think it's fine. Like, he's not going in the water. He's just sitting right next to the dock. He's okay. And they argue about safety. And Brody wants him to know the proper rules and safety things when it comes to sailing and stuff like that and ellen is really laid back until she opens up one of the books that he's been reading and sees a young boy being attacked by a shark on a boat and then she tells her son michael to get out of that water right now next we see two men on a little boat and they're going to try and catch the shark they put out a roast and they throw it in the water we see brody at home again looking at shark books injuries and giant shark pictures is pretty intense but also very interesting Now we cut back to the men, and they're still out shark fishing. They get a bite, and the shark is strong enough to break the dock that they're standing on and takes one of the men out with it. Charlie, the man who went out into the water, is swimming back, but the shark seems like it's hot on his tail. His buddy pulls him up at the last minute, and it was actually just the current bringing the dock back in, not the shark, but it definitely seemed like it was really chasing him for a second. Now one of the deputies is telling Brody what happened. I'm assuming this is the next day or maybe later that morning. And we see this man get to the island. He goes up to Brody and he's trying to talk with him. But Brody's trying to convince people not to go out shark hunting and not to put too many people in a boat and to just be safe and all of that stuff that a police chief should be doing in a small town. It's chaos at the docks. People are trying to take TNT on the boats. And we find out the man is Matt Hooper from the Oceanographics Institute. Brody's trying to control what's happening, but he can't do everything by himself. It's literally just him and another deputy. And the deputy kind of is no help. The deputy wants to know when they're getting more help, but that's not going to happen until at least the 4th of July. And right now we're a couple days away from that. Matt and Brody finally get a chance to talk. And Brody's so happy to have Matt there to provide some guidance. Like he's really excited. He wants to pick his brain. And they become a very good team throughout the film. So Matt really wants to look at the remains of the first victim, And so while they're kind of having a conversation, we see some of the locals trying to get out of the harbor and it's complete chaos. Like, you know, I don't know if you've ever like been to, you know, a harbor or a dock, but typically there's all of the docking stations and then there's a little, it kind of bottlenecks, you know, like there's, there's only a certain amount of space to get out of the dock. The dock itself can be really big and house a lot of boats, but then you have to go through this little area to get back out into the ocean. And they do that so that, you know, the, the waves aren't coming in and crashing and moving all the boats around and, and things like that. Cause then boats would get, um, damaged and, and things. So there's typically a smaller 
area that you leave the harbor through. And so all of these boats are trying to leave the harbor at the same time, but there's too small of an area to get out. It's just total chaos, basically. So Brody takes Matt to the coroner, and Matt is recording some audio. And when he looks at the body, he looks super worried. He then asks for some water, and Matt asks if they've notified the Coast Guard yet. Brody's like, no, I kind of thought it was just like local jurisdiction. And Matt says it was for sure a shark attack. And Matt's really upset because they're not dealing with this properly. This is a very big issue. And they, you know, basically wrote it off as, as a boat accident. So now we're back down at the dock and they have killed and brought back a shark. It's chaos. There's tons of people there. The news agency is there getting pictures. And Brody seems so happy. He's like, we're done. This is all behind us now. This is great. So excited. But Matt looks very skeptical. And he's like, I'm pretty sure that shark is not big enough to be the shark that killed that girl. Quint comes into the harbor. And he's just kind of laughing at the nonsense. Like, he's on his boat just kind of doing his own thing. And they get this big group photo with the shark and the mayor shows up and some locals are curious about what kind of shark it is and matt tells them that it's a tiger shark the mayor's really excited and matt's now arguing with the locals about how it may not be the shark that killed those people matt ends up meeting the mayor and then he pulls brody aside and says that the bites don't match that the shark that they have caught and strung up on the dock is too small to be what injured that girl but Matt does say that the odds of two man-eating sharks in this area are rare. That, like, typically that does not happen. These two types of sharks in this area at the same time, you know, kind of crazy odds. So Matt wants to be sure. So he says that they need to cut the shark open and check what it's been eating. The mayor says they can't do this here. Uh, he's worried that, you know, the little boy might be coming out of the stomach and he doesn't want that in front of all the people, which is pretty valid, I feel like. At this moment, the mom walks up, the mom of Alex walks up to Brody and smacks him. She's like, I know that you knew about the shark and you didn't tell anyone. You let people go in the water, you wouldn't go in the water, and my boy's dead because of it. Even though the mayor told him he couldn't. She's like, you should have shut down the beaches. And it's like, he didn't have a choice not to, or he didn't have a choice to, like, shut the beaches down. She's upset, but I, and I feel like that's really fair. She blames him for her son's death, she starts crying, and then she walks away. The mayor apologizes, and Brody's like, no, she's not wrong. Like, I should have just done what I knew needed to be done. Back at home, Brody's spacing out. He won't eat dinner. He's feeling a lot of guilt, but his younger son is sitting next to him, and he's copying what he's doing. So, like, um, Brody's sitting with, like, his hands crossed in front of him, and so then his son does that, and then he puts his head in his hands, and so his son does that. And when Brody realizes this, he tries to make his son laugh, which is it's a really sweet moment. And then he asks his son for a kiss because he's sad, and so his son, like, gives him a little peck and then, you know, goes off to play. And Matt shows up at the door. Matt came to see Brody and he brought some wine. Matt asks how his day was and Brody just laughs because, of course, you know, they were together most of the day and it was bad. <laughs> Matt takes Brody's dinner and Ellen says, uh, she, she has this great line. She's like, so my husband says that you're in sharks. And it's like, you're not wrong, but that's a really weird way to describe it. And so they laugh about it. And he's like, yeah, kind of. Like, I love sharks. He explains that when he was 12, he went fishing off of Cape Cod and a baby shark ate his boat. And he had to swim back to shore. And ever since then, he's kind of been fascinated by them. And that was what got him into sharks. Matt says that tomorrow he's going to have to tell the Institute that Amity still has a shark problem. And Ellen's really confused because she's like, well, all over the news, they've been saying that the shark is dead. 
And Brody pours himself a very large glass of wine. And Matt's like, yeah, I'm, you know, supposed to be going on a research trip starting tomorrow. So not really sure what you guys are going to do about the shark. And Ellen shares that Brody hates boats, hates the water, always has. Brody and Matt start talking sharks. And they have this theory, or Matt tells him about this theory of territoriality, which basically this great white shark has claimed the area around Amity Island as its territory and won't leave until there's no food left for it. Brody, when they're talking, decides that they need to go cut the shark open because they need to know for sure whether or not it's the shark. And he's like, I'm the chief of police, so I can do what I want. They cut the shark open and surprise, no humans. Other things inside, mostly fish, a couple of things that really aren't food that the shark ended up eating, but no body parts. They hope they can confirm the shark is still alive by spotting it, so the two of them set off to do just that. Brody doesn't want to go out on the boat, but Brody's just drunk enough that Matt convinces him to come. We learned that Matt comes from money, and he kind of has a rich family, so he's got this really nice boat with all this really nice equipment, and they actually find the shark with the fish finder on his boat. And we see this yellow barrel floating by the boat. While they're out, they come across Ben Gardner's boat. He's the local fisherman that we kind of talked about in the fun facts, but the boat's all banged up, and no one's on the boat. Matt decides that he needs to get closer to check it out, and there's bite marks on the boat. Matt decides he's going to go in the water and check it out, and he tells Brody not to touch anything. We see Matt kind of suit up. He gets in the water and he finds a shark tooth and another bite mark under the ship. And we also get the really good jump scare with the dead floating head popping up. But this jump scare causes Matt to drop the shark tooth. The next day, they're talking to the mayor and telling him a great white has claimed the waters around Amity Island. And they explain to him that the shark's going to stay around if there's still people in the water. They can't avoid it. They try and explain to him, but the mayor's being a jerk because Matt drops the tooth. He's like, well, you don't have any proof. Like, where's this tooth? Where's the evidence? Blah, blah, blah. And Matt's clearly getting frustrated because he's like, you motherfucker. Like, you aren't listening. You don't care about these people. The mayor's more concerned about some vandalism that happened, that sign that I was talking about that's like, welcome to Amity Island. And like, this is the 50-year anniversary of our big 4th of July celebration. Someone, um, a couple of kids, I'm assuming, kind of drew shark fins on the sign and yeah kind of defaced it with shark paraphernalia if you will um and so he's upset about that because that could drive tourists away so Matt tries to further explain to the mayor that all sharks do is swim eat and make little sharks and this shark is no different he's going to swim he's going to eat and if he has the chance he's going to possibly make little sharks if another shark you know is is in the area to mate with him The mayor says that he's not closing the beaches on the 4th of July. He's not closing them at all because the town needs the money. And next we see a huge ferry of people coming into town. Matt and Brody are on their own trying to get more help. A flood of tourists are coming onto the island. There's like a town montage of people arriving and hanging out and and the beach getting more and more full. Brody's now on the beach patrolling and Matt is out on a boat. They don't see anything yet. There's also a news report going on having to do with the shark attacks. The mayor asks a local to get in the water because no one's going in. They eat, and these this couple, this local couple, even take their kids into the water. And you can tell they're super uncomfortable, but they do it because the town it needs the money, I guess. So soon others join them. There's even like a helicopter flying around. Brody's oldest son is going to take his little boat into the water with some friends, but Brody pulls his son aside and asks him to put it in the pond instead. His son's like, the pond's for old ladies, and he's like, I know that, but please, for your old man's sake, just hang out in the pond today. Like, 
because of everything going on. So his son, Michael, agrees, and it's a really sweet moment. Ellen's watching their youngest, and he wants to go with his oldest brother. Everyone's playing and having a good time, and then we get a bunch of feet shots in the water. The mayor's doing an interview and says that the shark is dead. Amity means friendship. You know, doing kind of all this, the schmoozy mayor stuff that they do in films. Next, we see a shark fin, and people start to panic. People are climbing over each other to get out of the water. The panic is getting worse and worse, and kids are screaming. People are screaming. People are being trampled. The mayor's pissed. But the fin was just some kids playing a joke. And they're lucky they didn't get shot because there's these other ships in the water. I'm guessing like Coast Guard or locals or whatever. And they pull up to these kids with this fake shark fin with guns because they're going to kill the shark. But it's actually two boys. So a few moments later, just as people are settling down a little bit, a young girl sees a shark going into the pond. Brody runs over to the pond and the shark attacks Michael and his friends along with another boater. The shark gets the other boater, and we see his legs sink to the bottom. The shark passes Michael, and he's frozen where he's swimming. Brody is running up just as his friends are pulling him out of the water. He's unconscious, but just in shock, thankfully. Now Brody and his family are at the hospital. His son's going to be fine. He'll just need to stay in the hospital overnight for observation. Ellen takes their youngest home, and Brody chats with the mayor. He makes the mayor sign a form, allowing Quint to kill the shark in agreement for the $10,000 that he asked for. The mayor agrees and signs the form kind of reluctantly. He's also smoking at a hospital, which I'm guessing at this time was allowed, but still just kind of shocked me when I saw it. Next, we see Matt and Brody at Quince, and he has some other demands. He ends up getting what he wants. They agree because they just want him to take care of the shark. Matt wants to go with him, and Quint kind of gives him crap, and he tests him a little bit, and Quint's like, I really think I should do this by myself. Brody says it's his party and charter, but Quint's like, well, it's my boat. They're prepping for the mission and loading up the ship. Matt is bringing a cage with him. Quinn thinks that's a bad idea and gives Matt even more crap. Ellen and Brody are talking, and he's going on the boat as well. Ellen's making sure he has what he needs, and Ellen tells her husband that Quint makes her uneasy. He says to tell the boys that he's just going fishing. They hug, and he gets on the boat. Ellen leaves crying, and we see the orca, Quint's boat, leaving the harbor. Next, we see blood in the water, and they're baiting the shark with a chum line. Quint opens a beer, and Matt and Brody are working. Brody accidentally messes with the air tanks, and Matt gets really upset and says if he's not careful, he could blow up the whole ship. Quint's now trying to teach Brody how to tie different knots. Things are quiet, and then Quint's line starts moving a little bit, his fishing line. He prepares the pole, and he's ready for the pull. Quint tells Matt to reverse the boat. Quint says that the shark is either very smart or very dumb. Quint thinks that the shark went under the boat because he's smart. Matt doesn't think that it's actually the shark. Quint leaves the two of them to deal with the shark uh, and the fishing pole, but the line snaps. Quint says not to question him anymore, and Matt says that doesn't mean anything. He's kind of like, well, see, I was right, like it was the shark. And Matt's like, we didn't actually see it, so it doesn't mean anything. Now we see Matt driving. Quint is explaining that he's drawing the shark to the surface. There's more quiet time. Matt's playing solitaire, and Quint wants Brody to start another chum line. As Brody's doing the chum line and getting annoyed, the shark pops his head out of the water. Very big shark, very spooky, great scare. Brody backs up into the boat and tells Quint, we're going to need a bigger boat. The shark is now right behind the boat, and we get the great jaws, the music. They agree it's probably a 25-foot shark. It's swimming right next to the boat. Brody's kind of freaking out, and Matt and Quint go to work prepping. The radio in the ship goes off, and Quint answers the radio call. It's Ellen. Meanwhile, Matt wants Brody to go out to the front of the boat. Matt wants him to be in front of the pulpit just for photos so they can kind of get a reference point of how big the shark actually is. Brody's like, I'm not going out there. Absolutely not. 
Quint tells Ellen nothing's going on, just fishing over and out and hangs up. Quint goes out to the front of the ship with the harpoon gun and they get a barrel attached to the shark so he can't go under the water for too long and so that they can follow him. As they're chasing the shark, he's able to go under, which surprises them. Brody wants to go back, but Quint says they need to stay out and keep an eye on it. It's nighttime now and Matt and Quint are comparing scars and kind of war storying. Brody has a scar that we see, but he really doesn't say anything about it. Quint and Matt are drunk, and we learn that Quint was on the USS Indianapolis. It's a sub that was attacked by Japanese soldiers after Hiroshima. He and his fellow soldiers were attacked by sharks in the water for five days. 1,100 men went into the water, and less than 400 were rescued. It's a pretty intense story, um, and kind of really brings the mood down from where it was, where they were all kind of joking and laughing. And then we hear whales singing. It's very eerie. The men start singing, and we see the barrel coming toward the ship. It's ramming the ship, and water starts coming in. Brody goes to the radio for help, and a small fire starts. Brody puts it out, and they come outside. Quint starts shooting at the shark, and Brody grabs his handgun. Next, we see the boat just kind of hanging out in the water. Things are quiet again. Now it's morning, and they're trying to fix up the ship. The shark did quite a bit of damage the night before. The barrel pops up again right behind the ship. They grab the barrel rope with the hook, and the shark tries to grab Matt and Quint. Brody tries to radio the Coast Guard, and Quint comes in and breaks the radio, like, with a bat just smashes it brody freaks out which i feel like is fair and matt interrupts them and says the shark is back for lunch they quickly get another barrel ready they hook another barrel around the shark so they can follow it the ship can't go that fast though because of the damage that was done to it they pull up right behind the shark and shoot it it comes around the back and brody shoots at it with his handgun the barrels disappear and then pop back up they're going to try and lead it toward the shore rather than going out towards sea even more they go to collect the barrels with the shark attached Matt gets on the wrong side of the line and is almost pulled into the water. Brody saves him just before he's pulled in or badly injured because of the rope. The shark's trying to eat through the rope and they shoot him again. No one's steering the boat and it's being thrown about in the water. The boat's taking on a ton of water at this point and they have to cut the shark loose because otherwise he'll take the whole ship down. They do and he tries to swim away. Quint says he won't be able to swim with three barrels on him. The barrels disappear and things get really quiet. Brody's trying to climb up top with the others and the shark bumps the boat. Quinn says they'll draw him to the shallow waters and he'll drown. No worries, they, they have a plan, but they just need to get the boat there. Quint is putting too much pressure on the boat and him and Matt are arguing. Matt and Brody are watching the shark and Quint's singing. It feels very tense and then the bearings on the boat burn out. A ton of smoke is coming from it and when Matt goes down to look, there's a small explosion. The guys are waiting to see what will happen next. The boat is basically dead in the water and Quint brings out life jackets to Matt and Brody. Matt thinks he can drug the shark if he can get close enough to his mouth. They start prepping for this plan and they assemble the drop cage and Matt is going to go into the cage to shoot the shark. Very bold move. Also, this is on my bucket list. Not shooting, but I do want to be like in one of those cages to watch the sharks live their best life and just like watch them up close. I think that would be so cool. I think sharks are really interesting. So yeah, the, the cage diving thing with sharks is on my bucket list. Matt says to try and keep the shark off of him until he's lower down. They start dropping the cage and we're underwater with Matt. It's really not that big of a cage either. We see the shark getting closer and closer and closer. Really great shark footage. It looks like it's swimming away from Matt and then it comes up behind him and knocks the cage. He drops the harpoon that has the drugs in it and it falls to the ocean floor. Matt tries to look for it, but the shark's ramming the cage and the bars are bending and the shark is almost in the cage with him. Matt's trying to hit its nose, but it's too big, so it really doesn't do anything. Matt gets out of the cage and swims for the harpoon. 
Brody and Quint pull the cage up, but the shark pulls it off the boat and then swims away. They are kind of able to pull up the cage, but it's broken and Matt is nowhere to be seen. The shark then tries to parkour onto the boat, causing it to tip and take on even more water. So the shark kind of like throws the, I guess like its head onto the ship. It's pretty intense. Quint slides right into the shark's mouth and is eaten and pulled away by the shark. Brody is now on a sinking broken boat by himself and the shark breaks in and tries to get to him as well. Brody puts one of the oxygen takes in the shark's mouth and then climbs to the highest part of the boat before it sinks completely. He grabs a rifle and climbs into the crow's nest. The shark comes back for him and he's stabbing at it with the harpoon. The shark still has the tank in its mouth and Brody tries to shoot it. He says, smile, you son of a bitch, and then shoots the tank and the shark explodes. Great scene of bloody water. 10 out of 10, we see shark pieces flying in the air and the water turn red around a shark fin. Next, Matt resurfaces and climbs on what is left of the boat above the water. Brody's happy to see him and they laugh about what has happened. We hear seagulls and Matt asks about Quint. Brody just kind of shakes his head. They start making their way back to shore, hanging on to barrels, having to kick and paddle all the way back. Next, we see the coastline and the end credits start. And that is the end of Jaws. I had a really good time doing this one. I think it's a really fun kind of 4th of July horror movie watch. Um, There aren't that many that I know of that are kind of, I guess, 4th of July themed. Not that this one's like themed, but, you know, takes place right around that time. So that being said, I hope everyone has a safe 4th of July weekend and uh, careful if you're going to the water. Maybe stick to, to lakes. I think there's a movie about that as well where they put where they put sharks in a lake. I'm pretty sure that was a thing. I feel like I remember seeing that movie. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can give us a like and a follow on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you're listening. Um, Totally not necessary, but if you like it, that would be awesome. And if you want to follow the podcast on social medias, we are on socials under M Murder Movies. So that's M as in Massacre, Murder Movies on Instagram and Twitter. I hope everyone has a safe holiday weekend or whenever you're listening to this, I hope you have a safe time and remember to stay safe and stay spooky.